Beloved congregation of the Lord, will you turn with me uh, again to the 110th Psalm, Psalm 110, and verse 4. The Lord hath sworn and will not repent. Thou art a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Well, children, um, if ever in your life you would be a witness to a crime, do you know that you could actually be asked to bear witness to what you know before a court. You might be summoned to testify about your understanding of events before a judge or, or a jury. And here in Canada, uh, as you get um, beside the, the judge and you get into the the witness stand, you'll be given an opportunity to do one or two things. You can, can simply promise to tell the truth to the best of your understanding, or they will give you the option of swearing an oath on the Bible. So what they'll do is they'll provide a Bible like this, and they'll, they'll ask you to place your hand on the Bible and you will give an oath before God, a, a very serious promise that everything that you say will be the truth, so help you God. And it's an interesting remnant of Christian civilization, even though our, our society has so uh, rejected the things of the Lord. There is still that which is a, a remnant of an older time where it was understood that if you really wanted to take someone's word as, as reliable, you ought to require an oath of them. They would uh, thereby be testifying that if they were to depart from the truth, God would witness to this, and they would be accountable to this higher power for everything that they said. And indeed, that was for that reason that for uh, previous generations, the, the word of an atheist in, in a court actually didn't, didn't matter because such a person who didn't have a higher power that they could swear to, they, they obviously couldn't be trusted. But here in our, our text, we have a very special kind of oath because it's an oath that is sworn by the Lord God himself. Verse 4, the Lord hath sworn and will not repent. You see, unlike ourselves who can swear an oath in the name of God, there is no one higher than God. God must swear this oath by himself. And so he, he sets forth here in the words of our text this oath that goes back all the way to the council of eternity what what some theologians call the covenant of redemption and it sets forth that determinate purpose of the lord for which he will never repent no he'll never change his mind 
concerning this. Thou art a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. And as we began to see this morning, this uh, psalm is setting forth glorious truths about the Lord Jesus Christ. That is the person about which God the Father is here speaking. And it's a very pivotal text. It's a, a text that really highlights the priestly office of our Lord as we've been continuing to consider the different offices or the threefold office of the Christ, the anointed one. It is this text which affords a very great opportunity to get into the, the glorious riches of what Scripture speaks concerning this. And so I would, I would press upon you that this deserves our closest attention. These are things that angels desire to look into, and so shall we not give it the very closest heed. And so let's uh, consider this text and some others that we've read and, and others that are related, and we'll consider the theme, Christ's priestly office. Christ's priestly office. And we'll consider first, he is the only high priest. Second, his priestly sacrifice. And third, his priestly intercession. And as we move to our first uh, consideration, let's also consult what uh, we've, we've heard from our uh, confession in Lord's Day 12, that he is indeed anointed to be our only high priest. Our only high priest. That's the language that the Heidelberg Catechism uses. And as we read from the book of Hebrews, you know that this is the language of the Bible. The high priest was in reference to the greatest of priests under, under the old covenant um, in the nation of, of Israel, whom um, that book is especially addressing, the relationship between old and new covenant. And so the priesthood of Christ as the mediator of the new covenant is what is focused upon there. But if we would understand the very rich theology of the book of Hebrews, which our confession is drawing from, then we need to go back even further still. Because as I explained in the morning, the entire theology of Hebrews is really an unfolding of what we see in this psalm. And the fourth verse, the fourth verse of this uh, psalm, as you know, is given a very extended reflection. It's given given much discussion in the book of Hebrews. The Lord hath sworn and will not repent. Thou art a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Now how is it that this, uh, this verse sets forth the truth that Christ is not only the high priest, the greatest of, of priests, but as well he is the only high priest, that there is Indeed, no other priest to whom we now look. Well, to understand the significance of that, it is helpful to look at the Melchizedek to whom this verse is referring, because you'll notice it says, Thou art a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Or you could say, um, 
according to the similitude of Melchizedek or, or very much like Melchizedek. There is a similarity between this man with this most strange name and the Lord Jesus Christ in his priestly office. And we read that passage from Genesis chapter 14, kind of a, a mysterious passage, isn't it? There is Abraham, and he assembles a bunch of his uh, servants together and some of the other kings that he's joined to in a confederacy, in an alliance, in order to rescue Lot and his, his family. This was his beloved nephew, as you'll remember. And so there is this slaughter of the kings as um, Abraham wages a just war in order to defend and rescue this beloved family member. He is given a great victory from the Lord and he secures both um, with his, his family as well as the property that was stolen. And after he is returning from that holy uh, mission, he encounters this mysterious figure as he's approaching the city of Salem. Now that is, is a surprising thing because that's a shorthand for the city that would later become Jerusalem. And we know that that city was occupied um, by uh, very evil idolaters whom the Lord slaughtered under Joshua's sword. But in those days, it was actually under the guidance and the rulership of this mysterious man by the name of Melchizedek. And he is a king, and he is a priest. He has these two things going on together. And he comes out to Abraham, and he, he greets him. He's not one of these unrighteous kings who is going to oppress or, or kill the people of the Lord. No, he offers food, bread, and wine. And Abraham acknowledges him for what he is as a priest. He gives him a tithe, a tenth of the spoil that he received. Isn't that interesting? He saw that principle of tithing to be important, that you give a tenth of what you have, your, your first fruit to the Lord. I'll be that as it may. There's, there's this, this striking thing. You have a priest here. Many years before anything like it surfaced in the nation of Israel, before even the nation of Israel existed, you have a priest. And as you look at the, the book of, of Genesis and the book of Exodus and some of these most ancient histories in the Bible, you come to see this, this very interesting fact that there are, are priests that seem to uh, be recognized as legitimate, as indeed Melchizedek is spoken of in Genesis 14 as a priest of the Most High God. And yet we don't know precisely when God made them priests, when exactly these priests came upon the scene. But we do come to know exactly why they exist. God made the very first priests, like this man Melchizedek, and if you consult the history in, in, in Exodus in chapter 18, you'll see that um, Moses' grandfather, um, father-in-law Jethro was also a, 
a priest in Midian. Now, these priests, they were essentially mediators between God and man, just as uh, the man um, Melchizedek gave a blessing to Abraham because he was favored by the God of heaven and earth. So also this was the role of all priests, to give blessing to the children of men. It was necessary, you see, after the, the fall into sin, that would be reconciled unto God. For, for God is holy, he is spotless, he is undefiled, and, and how shall we approach him? Well, God appointed priests, special servants of his that, that would minister blessings to sinners, but as well that they would be appointed to um, officiate and lead worship that was acceptable to him. If anyone would, would offer uh, worship and offerings unto God, well, you could go to these priests and they would, they would be received of God. And it appears that uh, all of these different priesthoods that would have been established in, uh, at that point in the, in the region that would come to be known as Jerusalem and Midian and, and other places, eventually all of these priests that were at some point appointed by God for his worship, they fell into corruptions and idolatry. So you have the priests of Pharaoh, for example, which were obviously idolatrous and and not pleasing to the Lord as well. But perhaps at one point they would have been true priests who, who served the Most High God like Melchizedek. But as time progresses, then all of these servants, they depart from the way of truth, and, and it's left to the Lord to reestablish a true priesthood among the descendants of Abraham. So that is, is some of the background here of, of what we see in this man, Melchizedek. And yet here we have a very striking thing. Here in the days of David, Many centuries later, after so much history has unfolded, David pens these words in Psalm 110, verse 4. The Lord has sworn and will not repent. Thou art a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Now that would have, would have been a very... A very unusual thing. He's speaking about one who is another priest like Melchizedek. Long after this, this man Melchizedek faded into history, David is speaking about him and saying, in the future, I see that the had to be weaved together with special fabric. They had, had uh, these belts they had to wear. They had capes, special headdresses. They had the, the names of the tribes uh, written on their shoulders and upon their, their breastplate. And they had specific responsibilities, especially attending to the appointed worship of God with the blowing of, of special instruments like trumpets, with uh, the slaughter of animals, with the, the special responsibilities assigned to praying for the people and, and teaching the people. There was a very established priesthood. It was the central uh, 
aspect to the worship of God in the days of David. And yet, what he's saying here is that when you look ahead to the coming of the Messiah, there is something rather different. There is a priesthood wholly unlike these other priests, rather a priest after the order of Melchizedek. Now, what does that mean? What does it mean that Jesus Christ, the Messiah, is a priest like Melchizedek? Well, for that, I would refer back to chapter 7 of the book of Hebrews, which, as I've, I've said, is unfolding for us the rich truths of this, of this verse. Look with me, if you will, beginning at verses 1 and 2. The apostle writes, For this Melchizedek, king of Salem, priest of the Most High God, who met Abraham returning from the slaughter of the kings, And blessed him, to whom also Abraham gave a tenth part of all, being by interpretation king of righteousness, and after that also king of Salem, which is king of priests, king of peace. So let's stop there and and consider this. You see that uh, the apostle here is expositing this verse from 110th Psalm, and he is expositing this. This name, Melchizedek, well, it means king of righteousness. And we know from the history of Genesis that this man who was a king of righteousness, a righteous king in immoral and dark days, he was a king of a city called Salem or Jerusalem, which means peace. So he was both a king of righteousness and a king of peace, in addition to being a priest. That is the first thing we would attend to if we would understand what makes Christ's priesthood so special. It is joined to the office of king. Maybe some of you remember from uh, the book of 1 Samuel that the king Saul, who was the first king uh, who was appointed over the, the nation of Israel, that he one of the reasons why the Lord forsake forsook him and gave the throne to another was because he tried to intermix the the two offices. He tried to offer a sacrifice by himself without awaiting the appointed uh, office for that role of offering sacrifices. He was attempting to be both the king and the priest and and thereby bringing confusion and, and disobedience to the worship of God. And so when we think of this Melchizedek, who had these two things joined together, we have something that is totally different. He can offer all of the, uh, the responsibilities of a king, executing true righteousness in his domain, bringing about peace through his rule. But likewise, he can join this to all the responsibilities of a true priest and bringing people into fellowship with God. That's the first thing that we ought to consider when we consider what a great mediator Jesus is, this high priest after the order of Melchizedek. Have you, have you noticed it through this series? You can hardly think about one aspect of his office without immediately having your mind and heart gone to another aspect. He is a king according to his great authority. He is a prophet according to his perfect revelation. And yes, he is 
a priest to bring us into fellowship with God. All of these things, authority, revelation, and and reconciliation, they belong to him in perfection. So we see that in in understanding what this uh, means. But I think that if you read further, you come to see that what, uh, what the apostle wants us to see in this Melchizedek is that he is without a predecessor or a successor. In other words, in his special office, it doesn't really seem like anyone came before him or anyone came after him. Now look at at verse uh, 3 with me when it talks about this Melchizedek. It says, He is without father, without mother, without descent, having neither beginning of days nor end of life, but made like unto the Son of God, abideth a priest continually. Now, there have been different ways of understanding this verse, but as I've compared Scripture with Scripture, it, it appears that what the Apostle is getting at is that in the historical narrative of, um, of Melchizedek, he sort of just emerges on the scene. You don't really have any kind of details about his lineage, where he came from. You don't know what happened in Salem after after his rule ended. He's just there in the history. Abraham encounters him, he moves on, and we don't see him again. And the idea there is that God isn't constrained in, in what he can do. God can raise up a priest without any kind of prior uh, history that we would, would be aware of. And the, the, the basic argument that's given here is that uh, the, the great claim of the, of the Jews in those days, those Jews who rejected the claims of Jesus Christ as their Messiah, was that, well, Jesus, he comes from the tribe of Judah. How can he claim to be your priest? Surely, as, as the law of Moses says, he must come from the tribe of Levi. It's, it's all very black and white here. Well... What the apostle here is saying is that if we would have attended to the prophecy of David so many centuries before, we would know that God isn't constrained to only act within the old covenant law. Rather, he can do something utterly new as he did in the days of Melchizedek. If you look in verses 16 and 17, this this point is, is brought home further. Who was made, speaking of of Christ, who was made not after the law of a carnal commandment, but after the power of an endless life. For he testifieth, thou art a priest forever, after the order of Melchizedek. Those are the two things that are contrasted here. There's the carnal commandment. There are these, these laws that were appointed for a time under the old covenant for the ceremonial worship of the Lord. And now you have something far greater. The power of an endless life. The Son of God come in the flesh as the mediator. That's the sense here. What a great priest this is. God isn't limited to going according to these traditions that were even appointed by him. And so when we see that, we also ought to understand the great folly of false churches like the Roman Catholic Church. They would say, of course, that their ministers are actual priests, like under the the old covenant, and that their legitimacy ties into this fact that they all have communion with 
the Pope, who is in their reckoning the, um, the head of the church. But as well, they all trace their lineage according to a historic descent all the way back to the apostles. And we need to come to see that not only is the emphasis of this text that there is only one high priest, that only God can appoint a priesthood, but that he is without successor as Melchizedek was. So we see that in the in the second place, he's both a prophet and a, a, a priest and a king. He's without a predecessor or a successor. But uh, we should also see that he is a priest that is utterly perfect. A priest that is completely perfect. And for this, would you look at verse 11 in this chapter? If therefore perfection were by the Levitical priesthood, for under it the people received the law, What further need was there that another priest should rise after the order of Melchizedek and not be called after the order of Aaron? So you see that the apostle is using sound logic here. He's basically reasoning with the people in his own day and saying, why would you insist that Jesus would have to come from the tribe of of Levi, that he would have to be a priest exactly like these other priests. After all, if those priests were the end all and be all, if they were so fantastic, then why is it that David, all those years before, had specifically said that there must need be another priest? There must be this priest after the order of Melchizedek. It is there in black and white, there. In Psalm 110, how do you account for this, those who object to Jesus Christ's Messiahship? And in the course of this, you notice how he is setting forth perfection and imperfection. Now, the the old covenant priesthood, it was indeed good. It was appointed by the Lord. It was pleasing to him according to its intended purpose. It was intended to set forth a picture of the gospel. It was intended to nurture and to strengthen the faith of God's elect in those days. It was a picture of the greater priesthood to come, a type of the greater anti-type. It was this greater priest that it was pointing ahead to. And it, it had the means of dealing with what you could call ceremonial uncleanness. If, for example, you touch something that the old covenant ceremonial law considered unclean like a dead body, well, the priest could help you with that. They had specific sacrifices, specific rules that would, that would make you ceremonially clean and that would, would bring you back into the, uh, the worship and the fellowship of the Lord's people. But it wasn't perfect. It wasn't perfect because in and of itself, It could never deal with the very fundamental problem of sin. This is what he expands upon if you go further down in uh, verses uh, 18 and 19. For there is verily a disannulling of the commandment going before for the weakness and unprofitableness thereof. For the law made nothing perfect but the bringing in of a better hope did, by the which we draw nigh 
unto God. These things, they, they were not capable of truly dealing with the problem of sin. They were not capable of making sinners perfect before the sight of a perfect God. And that is what is required. God is of pure eyes and can even look upon iniquity. He can have no fellowship with darkness, for he is pure light. What was necessary was not that, that these sort of things uh, should have dealt with sin, just these uh, men who would live and die and offer sacrifices and offer prayers. No. That whole system, that whole old covenant law, it could not get the job done. And so the contrast uh, between these two things cements this truth, both then and for eternity, that there is only one high priest, and that is the one after the order of Melchizedek, even Jesus Christ, the Messiah and Mediator. And if we would ask why it was that his priesthood was so perfect, that would bring us to our second consideration, not only that he is the only high priest, but that he has offered a priestly sacrifice. And there's, of course, many places that we could go, really, when it comes to the sacrifice of our great high priest, we're coming to the very center of the gospel. It is a most precious thing, and we could go to many places to unfold this truth. But I'd like to stay with the book of Hebrews for the moment and, and go forward uh, to the ninth chapter, as you can have occasion to read uh, later on in your own study. There's this extended reflection upon Christ's priesthood in these chapters. And I think once you get to chapter 9, verses 12 and 14, you come to some things that are of particular importance. Notice what it says here. Neither by the blood of goats and calves, but of his own blood, he entered in once into the holy place, having obtained eternal redemption for us. For if the blood of bulls and of goats and of the ashes of an heifer, sprinkling the unclean, sanctifieth to the purifying of the flesh, how much more shall the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without spot to God, purge our, your conscience from dead works to serve the living God. Now understand the, the contrast here. There is uh, the offering of the blood and bo of bulls and goats. And you understand how that would work if you've worked through the book of Leviticus, which gets into these things in great detail. There are these burnt offerings and sin offerings and, and special offerings, and they all have to go according to specific rules. But the common denominator in a, in a great many of them is there is the slaying of a substitute. These, these animals, say a, a lamb or a goat, and what would, what would proceed would be the, the laying on of hands upon the sinner. And then the priest would, would lay the hands upon the animal. And then he would take out the knife and, and slit the throat of the animal. 
The image is, is pretty clear, isn't it? The Lord, if he would pardon your sin, he must lay them on this substitute. And then, of course, there would be the, the altar. The altar. And, and as it says in, in Matthew chapter 23 and, and verse 19, it was especially the altar that, that sanctified that offering unto the Lord. Without the, the, the pillar of, of stone on which the, altar, the sacrifice would be burned, it could not be set apart for the worship of God. And what the, uh, the apostle is, is saying here is that the blood of bulls and goats and the ashes of a heifer sprinkling the unclean sanctifieth to the purifying of the flesh. So when the blood of the animal by the priest was, was cast upon the sinful uh, Israelite, there was a, a kind of purifying, a ceremonial purifying, but the genuine purity was lacking. What was really necessary was the greater sacrifice that that was pointing towards. Verse 14, How much more shall the blood of Christ, who through the eternal Spirit offered himself without spot to God, purge your conscience from dead works to serve the living God? Is there anyone here who really desires to serve God? Surely there are people who profess that. You want to serve the living God. You don't want to just live for yourself. You know that that the people in in Canada who just think that life is about owning the day and, and living according to your passing pleasures, that's no way to live. You want to serve the living God. But here, here is the problem. Your conscience won't allow it. Your conscience testifies that you are a sinner, that you are separated from God, that you can't do his will. So what is it that you need? Well, you need a sacrifice. A sacrifice that it it says here that is without spot, without any kind of defect. Just as those lambs, if they had even a, a slight defect in their skin or in their wool, that it couldn't be used for for a true sacrifice. So also Speaking of Jesus Christ, he was without spot in a moral sense. He lived a perfect life that we could never live. And so he was able to be the very sacrifice which we needed. So that as he was nailed to that cross, as the curse of God fell upon him, he was the true substitute. He was the true sacrifice. He was the one who bore the guilt of his people. There you see, there in in black and white, it says there, doesn't it, in verse 14, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without spot to God. So we can... See, he's offering himself to God. He's he's giving himself as the perfect sacrifice to the one we have offended and grieved and rejected with our sin. But what does that that mean where it says, through the eternal spirit offered himself? Well, there's different ways of understanding that, but, but it appears that this is corresponding to the role of the altar. 
just as it was the altar that would present that sacrifice before God, that it would be set apart for a sweet-smelling aroma unto the Lord. So also, in Christ's case, it was necessary that the eternal spirit should offer up this sacrifice. And it's interesting that although you might, might think it's talking about the Holy Spirit here, that historically the Reformed Church has always understood this. If you look at older commentaries, it's speaking about Christ's divine nature. Christ's divine nature sort of corresponding to the role of the altar. And it's interesting to compare it later on in the book of Hebrews, chapter 13, verse 10. It says very clearly, We have an altar whereof they have no right to eat that which serve the tabernacle. And if you read that whole chapter, it's very clear that is referring to Jesus Christ in some sense. And if you, you know where to look, you come to see that there's this, this truth of Christ sanctifying his offering uh, that, that pops up again and again. For example, John chapter 17 and verse 19, when he offered that prayer unto the Lord before his death, he said uh, concerning his disciples, and for their sakes, I sanctify myself, that they also might be sanctified through the truth. So it's a striking thing here. You have Christ as a sacrifice according to his human nature, according to his pure human body and soul. And you have Christ as the altar according to his divine nature, sanctifying and setting apart that sacrifice because through union with his divine person, his sacrifice is made acceptable unto the Lord, made of infinite value. And when you put those together, don't you have the complete work of a priest? There is this glorious person fulfilling everything required for this perfect sacrifice. And so it's he and he alone that can purge your conscience from dead works to serve the living God. Just a question. Do you think that if there was any other way that you could be reconciled to God, that the Son of God would have gone to all this trouble? Do you think that God, who did not spare even his own son, but but it caused him to endure all the agonies of hell upon the cross, who even willingly and perfectly pulled this off without even the slightest hint of resentment or sin towards his father, do you really think if there was any other way to serve God, that all this would be revealed before you today. Well, if you're still seeking some other way back to God, some other way of serving God, then I tell you, you have to give up that right here and right now. There's only one priest, only one altar, only one sacrifice, and that is Jesus Christ, the great high priest, according to the order of Melchizedek. But with... Uh, With that, let's also consider in the third and and last place his priestly intercession. His priestly intercession. And and let's begin by by considering uh, under this heading uh, a different book of the Bible, Romans chapter 8, verses 33 to 34. Romans 8, 33 to 34. Who shall lay anything to the charge of God's elect? It is... 
God that justifieth. Who is he that condemneth? It is Christ that died. Yea, rather, is risen again, who even at the right hand of God, who also made, maketh intercession for us. You notice that there it's setting forth that, that truth that we've been considering. Christ has died as, as the sacrifice for sins. But you notice how it continues. Yea, rather. Much more so. Much more, more to consider, he says, that is risen again, who even, is even at the right hand of God, who also maketh intercession for us. The point there is that if Christ had simply died upon the cross, it would have been no benefit to us. What was further necessary is that he would pray on our behalf. And so by interceding for his people, that it would be applied to all those appointed unto everlasting life. And so the question comes, who can bring any charge to God's elect? No one can charge them. Why? Because Christ both died for them and he intercedes for them. And this is very beautifully set forth in our, our catechism, isn't it? It says that he is our only high priest who by one sacrifice of his body has redeemed us and makes continual intercession with the Father for us. Continual intercession. Jesus is at no time not praying for his people. This is one of his glorious purposes now that he is there at the right hand of the Father. And that is to ensure that in every moment of every day he is offering before the sight of his Father each name, each face, each person for whom he died. And saying, oh God, have mercy upon that one. Have mercy upon this one. For the sake of what I have done for them, redeem them unto yourself. And this is likewise emphasized in uh, chapter 7 of, of Hebrews, which we read in verses 24 and 25. But this man, because he continueth ever, hath an unchangeable priesthood. Wherefore, he is able also to save them to the uttermost that come unto God by him, seeing he ever liveth to make intercession for them. I don't know if you've come to a point in your life yet where you were completely distraught. You had nowhere left to turn. It just seemed like the whole future was a dark cloud. And, and did it seem that in that moment, if a Christian brother or sister came alongside and prayed with you, did not... Even in that place, things seem the brighter. Or to, to change the, the illustration slightly, when you can think about the people who have loved you enough to pray for you, does that not afford some of the greatest encouragement to strive after holiness of life? Well, let me tell you something. Far, far greater should the intercession of Jesus Christ both encourage and motivate us. If we would really think about what that means, 
And if we are believers in him, every moment of every day, he is praying to the Father for us, ensuring that the prayers that we offer are also accepted of him, for they are presented before his throne of grace. Would that not, would that not offer so much encouragement in the Christian life? That's the glorious truth of, of Christ as high priest. If we would truly serve the living God with purified consciences, it is this that we must reflect much upon, congregation. Since he's a great high priest, he's one that we can never live without. And so the question is, are you living without him today? Well, I tell you, this, this passage, it says, he is able to save to the uttermost whomsoever come unto God by him. May it please the Lord to draw such people today who would come unto God by this great high priest according to the order of Melchizedek. And let us, let us never grow tired of hearing of him. Amen.